This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Michael Cathcart. Welcome to The Stage Show. celebrating the long history of Australian musicals today and with the Melbourne Cup and horses on our minds we also go behind the scenes at that epic wonderful English play War Horse which is set to return to Australia this summer but we start the show in Sydney with a tale of scandal and murder In 1984, Detective Eric O'Malley investigated the bizarre deaths of a young couple whose naked bodies were found by the side of a creek in Sydney's northern suburbs. O'Malley knew it was murder. He just couldn't prove it. Now, 35 years later, O'Malley is dead and his son is asking questions. That's the setup for a new audio play called The Goodbye Party. It's by one of Australia's best scriptwriters, one of our most lauded playwrights, Louis Nara. And the cast is huge, includes some big names. It's just out on Audible. And Louis Nara joins us right now. Welcome to the stage show, Louis. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. When did you get the idea for this one? Oh, I've had the idea for a long, long time. You see, I come from Melbourne, which is the centre of the universe, as you know. And when I came to Sydney, I heard about this couple who died next to a creek, Bogle and Chandler. And it happened in 1963, way before I arrived in Sydney. And it intrigued me because nobody solved the murder. But not only that, it was scandalous is because you peeled back not only what happened to the couple who were murdered, but it was a goodbye party and a sex orgy at the same time. And it revealed that in the North Shore, which is a supposedly very conservative place of a place of swingers, of sex parties. And so the public was absolutely intrigued. And over the years, people have tried to supply an answer. You know, how did the couple die? Who did it? Was it uh, the husband of the wife who died? Was it the CIA involved? Was it the Russians involved? Was it LSD that killed them? I mean, what actually killed them? They couldn't find out. So I thought, oh, this is very interesting. And I decided to set the murder 20 years later when I basically arrived and got to know Sydney. I wonder whether things are still as racy on the North Shore. Do they still get up to this sort of thing, do you reckon? I'm certain they do. I'm certain they do. <laughs> but it's probably more bizarre than it used to be. Write in and let us know if you've been to a sex party <laughs> yeah. in the North Shore. We'll pass it on to Life Matters. They can do it as a story. Let's hear a little bit of, of what you've done with this, Louis. Here's how it sounds. James is at his dad's funeral where he bumps into Paul Rossi, who's an old mate of his father's. I'm curious, uh, what did uh, Eric die of? He must have been only 60. <sighs> The police think a heroin or opiate overdose. I'm waiting on the toxicity report. <laughs> That's the last thing I would have expected. Same here. You don't think it was... <sighs> There's no easy way to say it. Was it deliberate? No. No, he wasn't a man to suicide. Actually, the last few weeks he seemed revitalised. An old case. It gave him a purpose. What sort of case? Well, all I knew... Well, all he told me was that he'd resigned from the police over it and he was finally going to prove them wrong. 
That sounds like radio drama as we used to know it. <laughs> You've really nailed this. What are your own memories of radio drama, Louis? I think the crucial thing about radio drama was it was uh, broadcast at a set time. And so you would sit down and listen to, say, radio drama at 4pm on a Sunday afternoon. That was high-class radio drama. And I remember that people would set aside time and there were no distractions. And I wrote radio plays, the ABC, BBC. But with this particular audio book, um, what... I had to confront was the fact that people listen to these things in their own time and generally they're doing a couple of other things, walking the dog or driving a car. And so unlike classical radio drama where you've got an immediate audience, they're going to pay attention. In this new form, you have to create um, the audience attention so they, they don't sort of wander off and do other things and forget about the show. Yes, well, the, the, the radio drama of later years that was broadcast on Radio National often tended to be of an experimental kind, whereas you've really harked back to the days of good old-fashioned entertainment and a sort of melodrama, really, and and spooky music and footsteps and rattling doors. I, I, I must say, I love this. I've listened to the first two episodes and I'm absolutely hooked. Well, that's very good. I actually play one of the roles. Oh, who uh, are you? Uh, I'm the pervert. I'm Parsons. <laughs> <laughs> and... This really came about is because one of the last plays I did for the ABC BBC, um, I played a pedophile judge. And a lot of people thought my performance was absolutely spot on. It was creepy. And I thought, well, I've got a niche market now. And uh, so I can play these roles. And I thought if I played Carson's, they, they can't get rid of me in the edit. I'm crucial. So even if I wasn't acting very well, the poor buggers were stuck with me. This is marvellous stuff. Louis, you should be writing monologues for yourself. I mean, this would absolutely go off. You could have your own podcast channel. It'd be very scary stuff. Let, well, let, let's hear some more. Here's uh, James. That's the son of the old copper who's died. And he's talking to Carla, who was a neighbour of his dad's. And she seems to becoming, well, James's confidant, really, as he starts to realise that things are not quite what they seem. He dies of a hot shot when he wasn't a junkie. The boxes go missing. Hey, you're losing me again. He had these boxes. And they were probably files or research of some sort. Started looking at him again a few weeks ago. After all this time, why now? He must have thought he was onto something. Onto what? I don't know. But I think he was killed for it. And that's the end of episode one. <laughs> See, that's how you write a cliffhanger. That's right. That's how you do it, Michael. <laughs> Just that's like years it. of experience goes into those moments. Yeah, beautiful. And and not being afraid, not thinking, will it sound corny? You just nail it. I think he was killed for it with the big paws, everything. So there are 12 chapters in this. It's a drama that goes over 12 chapters. There's a cast of more than 40, it says in the publicity, although I can't work out on the website who the cast are, so I haven't been able to tell you who all the actors are, but it's got Ben Oxenbold, Steve Bisley and Aaron Pedersen in it, and they're, they're all working as narrators. So you've got three narrators, and this device really works well. It, it is like a story reading with sort of dramatised conversations bursting out of the reading. Is that how you started off with that form, with these narrators sort of carrying the story forward? 
I, I think you have to create diversity over 12 episodes so you don't get tired of one particular voice telling you where everything is going. I think that's really important. I also think that the sounds have to be in the foreground. As you quite rightly pointed out, towards the end of Radio National's life doing radio drama, the, the, it became so subtle that uh, a lot of people couldn't sort of decide between a foreground and background what was the more important thing. And so I've made sure that I've shoved everything up front so it does capture your attention. So at the end of episode one, if you you know, cooking or something, you drop a plate going, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? <laughs> yeah. So if, you, if you've got a horse clip-clopping down the road, all you really need is clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop. You don't need birds and chatter in the background and everything. No, no, you don't. The audience are not interested in that. The, the other important thing, Michael, is, is that a lot of people think that um, audio books or radio plays are really stage plays um, and – you know, you broadcast stage plays, it isn't. What you're attempting to do is create a visual screenplay in the audience's mind. So what you're trying to do all the time is conjure up images. So as the audience is listening, what they're doing is creating their own movie. And that, to me, is the ultimate aim of any audio book and what I'm attempting to do in the Goodbye Party. Yes. So can't you say, that's a lovely dress, Dora? You've got to say, that's a lovely dress. And Dora says, yes, I picked the red fabric myself. I love the way it shines in the moonlight. (laughs) I, I think you pretty much nailed the form, Michael. <laughs> I can see your next career move. No, I'll leave it. I'll leave it to you and those who know what they're doing. So, apart from the sessions where you were performing your creepy character, your creepy cameo, did you attend the other tapings? No, I didn't. I, I was busy um, on another project that had to be uh, finished. I only went in for my own piece, and maybe that was egotistical. I'll just go in and do my piece. And so I only got to meet Ben Oxenbold uh, because we had a, a long scene together in the jail where um, I was enjoying myself immensely. I gather this is the way they, they take cartoons as well. You know those cartoons that have all-star casts, you know, famous people playing penguins? They never meet each other. They just go into a studio and... That's right. That, that's right. It's it's and then it's cleverly edited. Someone puts it all together. Yeah. Now I don't want to pry into your private business, Louis, but what are the economics of this? Do, do you get paid a straight fee? Is it based on on on, on royalties? What what's the setup? Um, pretty much, it is a straight fee. And what you begin to find <laughs> is you're doing an incredible amount of work for a fee that should be larger. Now, I'm just putting this one out there. <laughs> and so uh, essentially what I was doing was four huge different drafts of 340 pages each. And so it involved a lot of work. And the end product w- was wonderful, but um, it, it, it's harder than it really looks. Uh, uh, look, it sounds, it looks very hard to me because you've done it so seamlessly and with such joy and such panache. And you're not taking the piss out of this, but there's a kind of knowing joyfulness to the whole exercise. I really love this. Do you see yourself writing more of these, Louis? Yes, I do. It's very strenuous. And you have to come up with very, very strong ideas to make certain that you're not stringing the series out. And you know sometimes on TV you have a six-part TV series and it's very 
self-contained, but it becomes very successful. And so they do a, a second series, which is not so good, is because you're just stringing out what was originally so tight and full of impact. So where does this leave you and the theatre? Well, um, next year, funnily enough, talking about monologues, <laughs> I'm doing a one-man show called Twelfth of Never, and it's about my childhood growing up uh, on the Housing Commission estate and what happened and how I became a writer. Oh, you'll be there un under the lights. Yes, I'll be hamming it up. And the great thing about being the only person on stage, Michael, if I forget my lines, the audience won't know. No. Well, you're the writer. <laughs> if you want to get spontaneous, absolutely, you're right. Louis Nara, that's a marvellous thing. All right, well, thank you for coming in and telling us about your exciting life and congratulations <laughs> on this. I really, really loved listening to the Goodbye Party and it'll be terrific for people who are going on a long drive. It's just a thing to have on in the car. Thank you very much, Michael. Louis Nara. The show's called The Goodbye Party and, yes, it's great to listen to. It's produced by Audible. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is The Stage Show. <laughs> Which English poet, famous English poet, wrote this? Of man's first disobedience and the fruits of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse. I know it's almost incomprehensible, but it's John Milton. It's the opening lines of the epic poem Paradise Lost. And just over a month ago, a Cambridge scholar named Jason Scott Warren posted a blog in which he made an astonishing claim. He reckoned that Milton had written copious notes in the margins of an edition of plays by Shakespeare, a book owned by a library in Philadelphia. Well, what's the evidence for this? And why does it matter? Jason Scott Warren is a fellow of Cambridge University from where he joins us right now. Hello, Jason. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Look, we're talking about a copy of the first folio, which was the first ever edition of Shakespeare's collected plays published uh, in 16. 23 after he died. There are just over 200 copies out there in the world somewhere. And the one we're talking about is owned by the, the Philadelphia Free Library, which is a great name yeah. for a library. How did you spot this connection? So uh, I was sitting in my university library in Cambridge, uh, eating my sandwiches and reading an article by uh, an American academic uh, called Claire Bourne, which uh, described this Free Library of Philadelphia folio and uh, just talked about some of the annotations in it. And she was saying, you know, these annotations, these, these marks, they're quite interesting, they're quite subtle, uh, and they probably date from shortly after 1637, sometime around the mid-17th century. And she had a lot, of, a lot of photos in this article. And I just looked at the handwriting and I thought, could that be Milton? <laughs> but the writing's very modern-looking. Yes, that's that's true. And I think perhaps that's because, um, you know, Milton is a, a lover of all things Italian and our modern handwriting comes to us from Italy. And so he, I think it's true that his his writing, um, it's fairly easily legible for a modern reader. Um, it's quite familiar. 
I probably have spent too much time looking at Milton's handwriting. I mean, one thing that's quite fun to do uh, when you're teaching Milton is to uh, show your students uh, the, uh, a facsimile of, of Milton's drafts. That's now in Trinity College, Cambridge, where you can actually see him really working out line by line some of his most famous works, and also where you can see him kind of scratching around for ideas for poems and indeed for future kind of epics. So you get the first version of Paradise Lost, and it's written as a play uh, rather than an epic poem so it's fun to call that up and I guess I have uh, spent some time with it and I'm kind of familiar with what Milton's hand looks like. There are Milton scholars all around the world what did they say were they convinced by your claim? Uh, I did get some very encouraging sort of initial uh, responses from Miltonists out there one in particular Will Poole at Oxford uh, who had uh, worked on uh, other books that had been owned by Milton because we have sort of I think about nine or ten surviving books by Milton not very many uh, from what must have been a very substantial library um, and he'd worked on these he knew what kind of markings uh, Milton made in his books and he wrote straight away saying you know absolutely this is a direct hit um, yeah and he was really excited Milton is in the generation after Shakespeare I think Milton's eight years old when Shakespeare dies in 1616 in fact yeah. Milton's first published poem was a sort of tribute to Shakespeare how would you describe their relationship and how is it illuminated by these markings in this book I think that scholars have always thought that the relationship is uh, is a deep one. So if you pick up any edition, any decent edition of Milton's poems, you will find lots and lots of notes pointing you to Shakespearean echoes. So I think that uh, we've probably always had a sense that uh, Shakespeare is a, a very powerful informing presence for Milton. I think that we've probably also had a sense that Milton learns a lot about how to write dramatically from Shakespeare. So what this volume then gives you is a kind of really intimate glimpse into uh, what's going on in the encounter between Milton and Shakespeare. And some of it is really quite interesting, surprising. There are some plays which you might think would be annotated very thickly, which are less, you know, less uh, annotated. So Richard III, say, you know, I, mean, I think, think probably I, I've always had a suspicion that Shakespeare, that Milton would have learned how to do villainy from Shakespeare. So Milton's Satan would be coming out of Shakespeare. But some of the things that you might expect to be annotated are not annotated. But then there are lots of uh, really interesting things that are annotated. Well, so what, what sort of things does he say that are illuminating? I mean, he's not just saying good one will, I like that. What's he doing? Well, it's quite interesting. So the annotations divide into two broad categories. So you have, on the one hand, quite small-scale textual annotations where he's just trying to perfect the text, where he thinks there's something wrong, because a lot of the printing of the folio is very doubtful. There's a lot of textual corruption. There's a lot of error in the folio. So he's going through and he's trying to um, work out, you know, what did Shakespeare really want? to say here what was the text meant to look like and actually he does that with sometimes with a copy of another edition of the plays in his hand so uh, one of the things that Claire Bourne's article showed was that he's just he's got a, an edition from 1637 of Romeo and Juliet and of Hamlet and he's actually going through the text of the folio and he's kind of correcting it and altering it in relation to the quarto text the single play edition uh, and he also supplies a couple of cross-references to Shakespeare's sources. So he kind of says, you know, this comes from this other text. Um, that's one kind of annotation. And the other an kind of annotation 
they're really all uh, non-verbal. So a lot of uh, what you might think of as highlighter pen or highlighter quill, uh, where Milton is going through the text and just marking out passages that strike him. So in a sense, that's very frustrating because we don't know exactly why he loved those passages, what it was about those passages that attracted his attention. On the other hand, it's kind of fascinating because you, you start playing a guessing game of, oh, I can kind of see why he liked that. It's interesting to me that Shakespeare remains popular, whereas Milton is now pretty much confined to university courses. There can't be many people who on rainy Saturday afternoons think, hmm, I might curl up with Paradise Lost. I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, uh, why, why do you think that is? Because Milton was once top of the pops in, in, in yeah. Britain, certainly. I mean, the Paradise Lost was almost a sacred text. It was almost like an addition yeah, yeah. to the gospel. That's such an interesting question. I, I guess that, you know, for centuries, Milton created this idea of what poetry should sound like. He created the sort of textures and the feelings of poetry. In a sense, when we think about poetry as a sort of high-flown, slightly inaccessible, <laughs> prophetic thing, uh, you know, poets as these kind of extraordinary, I don't know, lightning conductors between heaven and earth, this very kind of grand idea of poetry. Milton created that idea in English poetry. And then in the 20th century, there was a, a real kickback against that idea. So poetry was going to survive. It would have to get rid of poeticism. It would have to throw out a lot of the things that Milton had taught it. Um, well, T.S. Eliot famously hated Milton because exactly. he, thought, he thought that yeah. Milton had divorced poetry from its kind of earthy vigour by making it all fancy. Absolutely, yeah. And, and Shakespeare, I guess, tells these stories so beautifully and the form that he gives the narratives remains so compelling. Shakespeare, I suppose partly it's Shakespeare's egolessness is really, is really you know, the sense that Shakespeare can stage a an argument and you cannot know which side he's on. Um, whereas Milton is kind of quite a poet of ego. He tells you a lot about himself. He stages his whole career uh, in his works. And uh, I guess now maybe we find that oppressive, just as perhaps we find the kind of Christian religiosity, the Puritan religiosity oppressive. So uh, maybe Shakespeare is more congenial for us for those reasons. Thank you so yeah. much for joining me and congratulations on this article that you've written. We'll put a link to your blog on our website because it's, it's so fascinating and uh, completely convincing and it's been a joy to meet you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Jason Scott Warren is a Cambridge fellow who's pretty much convinced the experts that an edition of Shakespeare's plays owned by a library in Philadelphia was annotated by Milton. And yeah, you can read his blog for yourself. There's a link on our website. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is The State Show. Well, the spring horse racing carnival is on in Melbourne. The highlight is the Melbourne Cup itself, a public holiday when magnificent horses pound the turf and Melburnians dress up and have lots of fun. But there's a dark cloud hanging over the city this year with many Melburnians distressed by the cruelty which lies behind all that glamour. So I thought it was an excellent occasion to revisit one of the great celebrations of horses and the ordeals to which we subject them. I'm talking about that epic British play, War Horse, which returns to Australia this summer. It's the story of an English boy named Albert who travels through the hellish battlefields of France to find his horse, Joey, sold to the British Army by Albert's drunkard father. Six years ago, I took you behind the scenes when Warhorse premiered in Melbourne. We met the three puppeteers who bring to life the breathtaking puppet horse, Joey. 
Let's go back. Now, I'm uh, backstage now, walking around on my own, and it's fantastic because these horses are hanging up on racks with kind of leather manes and these wonderful cane bodies. And uh, I'm just going to meet the puppeteers and we'll have a look at what it is they actually do. Because this is the sensation of the show, the way in which these horses suddenly become alive and you feel as though you're looking at an actual animal. Gosh, there are guns here. All the paraphernalia you need to wage war on the Western Front has been piled up backstage. So here we are at the horses and with the puppeteers. Hi, I'm Kayla. I'm Ben. Hey, I'm Grant. And you three get together to create a horse. That's true, yeah. We, we all do different parts of the horse. So, so Kayla, you are... I'm the head puppet. And, uh, Ben, you are... Uh, I'm the hind. And... I'm the heart. The heart. The heart. Oh, yes. That's a lovely thing to be. Yeah, they all start with <laughs> H and heart. They do. OK, so we're looking at one of the puppets here. Just talk us through what we're looking at. Um, well, this is Heiner, which is a German horse. Um, and as you can see, it's extremely sick. Um, it's weathered, it's very old, and it's been pulling carts for way too long in the war. So it's a really good um, uh, visual description of, of um, how poorly horses were treated in the First World War. So when we see Joey, who's a similar kind of uh, puppet, Joey is a magnificent-looking horse and, and remains magnificent-looking throughout the show. But when this horse comes on, the fabric that's been used to, to create this puppet is all tatty and you, you feel as though you're seeing its ribcage and that you're looking at a horse that's pretty close to death. Correct. Yeah, it is. Um, and so that's a really nice contrast that, do, that they've done with the puppets uh, in that Joey is immaculate looking. And if he does get hurt or injured, like he does right at the end of the um, play, not giving away too much, um, then, then it's, our, it's our job as puppeteers to, you know, um, give it that injury. Whereas with this one here, it's, it's pretty they much broken. Yeah, <laughs> that's they right. The yeah, they, they basically just start at death's door. I mean, there's extra bones on the puppet. Um, that Joey doesn't have and a few extra hinges and its spine showing and uh, they don't have a head puppeteer like uh, like Joey does so they they walk with their heads down and they look really sick and then wobbly and they just so you don't get to be a head on this one in this particular scene with the German horses I come on as a German soldier so I'm more leading them more than anything right. into more yeah but um, with Joey and Topthorn then they're healthy horses so they've got to have a proud head up. Now the amazing thing about those heads is how expressive they are. What, what kind of controls have you got to give the horses head expression? It's a lot to do with the ears because the eyes don't actually move. You've got to express a lot of the emotions through the ears. So it's a lot of it's clocking the sound going around them. And they said that the ears are a good indicator to how the horse is feeling as well. So. Yeah, so the ears kind of twitch and turn yeah. and, and you can rotate those and you yeah. can alter the angle of the head and move it around. So it's articulated on its neck, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And like you have full mobility like with turning the head each side and... With the ears, um, with triggers, so you've got individual triggers for you know the left and right ear. So how did the three of you get up to speed? I mean, what's your background first? Have you been a puppeteer before? Is that your job description? Uh, we're all actors, actually. <laughs> first time ever puppeteering anything. Uh, it, it was it was a weird thing. Like I suppose we all got a similar call from our agent saying, "Hey, there's this thing called Warhorse. Uh, you'll be one of three people inside 
or operating a, a horse puppet. And, you know, I'd, <laughs> I, I'd never heard of the show. And I, my initial response was, uh, oh, no, because this sounds like the pantomime horse joke, doesn't it? So you're going to end up as the ass into the pantomime horse. Exactly, yeah. Same here. It was, it was um, starting a new skill from scratch. Mm. But, you know, it was something that our puppeteers, directors, um, Craig Leo and um, Finn Caldwell um, really hit home with this, was just that understanding of narrative. And I think that the difference between acting and puppeteering in that regard is, is minimal. You know, we just, mm. it's a moment moment by moment um, telling of a story um, it's just the difference is that we're giving ourselves over to another object and, and bringing that to life as opposed to bringing ourselves to life through, through, through the words of another character so mm. that's the similarity so how did you get to learn how to be so expressive of horses did you watch lots of horses mm. yeah lots of lots of practice together actually but, um, but what about horses were you watching horses oh, definitely and we'll um, as a group we were brought to the Sydney um, police yeah in the Surrey mountain Hills police. the mountain police horses and we got to see them like, live in action these big horses and how they interacted with one another as well and you got to see them grooming each other and like just having these little moments which we tried to incorporate into the show as well and yeah we try to take as much as we can from royal horses and put them into the puppets and when you're under there being the head the heart and the hind do you talk to each other we have horsey language yes (laughs) really on stage not in english we don't talk to each other in english but we talk to each other via our breath um via horse noises number one Um, thing can we have a little demo of that yeah. yeah i mean well maybe when we're starting to trot or to gallop just before we're running on it would be something as simple as and that will give us a cue to keep going and then we do whinnies together and basically we were taught that a horse lungs has the capacity of three human lungs so say like someone will start off the sound and then we'll we all kind of filtered through the horse The, the three of them did that together. <laughs> so they got into a little huddle and made... Oh, You've got to do it again. Do it one more time. It's fantastic. <laughs> Once again, excuse the spit. <laughs> that is an astonishing sound. Okay. Have you tried it out on horses? Uh, we, Ooh, yeah. I, I didn't. I tried a little we bit. Tra- I tried, actually, when we went to, um, to visit the horses, I tried a knicker. They which kind is, of which got is, a little bit confused, I they think. They did. They a, got, a couple they, of them reacted, but it yeah. was just kind of like, what is that? I, they kind no, of respond not. more to the touch, because I remember I was just yeah. grooming one, and um, then he started grooming me up my arm as well, so it was beautiful. <laughs> but in terms of sounds, like I think they're looking at you and they know that you're not a horse, so I think it's kind mm. of a little bit confused. But. Now, I'm guessing that this show is meticulously choreographed. You don't kind of make it up as you go along, or is that not right? There are, there are some points that we have to be at a certain place at a certain time, but quite a lot of the show is us just being a horse i mean if you come on different nights there are different teams that play joey and you'll see a completely different joey and pretty much every night just because we have a different uh idea of his story and and how he moves and bits that he reacts to and bits that he doesn't react to a lot of it's just us really reacting really and the actors will try different things as well and we Mm. just have to as a horse react to that as well so gosh i'm astonished to hear you say that because i suppose the most challenging looking scene is where the two horses joey and the other horse well what happens when the two horses are let go in that scene where they're working out who's the dominant horse 
Ah, uh, the fight. <laughs> yeah. um. Uh, that's that's choreographed. That's choreographed. Yeah, yeah. definitely. For, for as fight well. scenes on stage usually. Yeah, yeah. Mm. exactly. For, for safety reasons yeah. as well. But the scenes where, you know, we're just standing there out in the field, and when Topham's trying to get, you know, his leg looked to after it's been injured, and we're being held back by a German soldier, like that is a lot of play that we get mm. around to there, and mm. like a lot of the time, like I might just go and bite the German soldier, and because we're there and he's manhandling mm. us, so a lot of it's just reactive. Yeah. Now, it looked to me, as I was watching you under there, as that was a little bit uncomfortable because some of the time you appear to be kind of a little bit bent over. It didn't look very ergonomically sound. <laughs> it, oh, it's just a matter of adjusting mm. um, and, you know, making sure that you're giving uh, the horse the full attention that it needs. Uh, puppeteering often requires the puppeteer to be in quite yeah, awkward awkward positions, and uncomfortable yeah. positions, and that's just part of the job. And we've, just, we've got fantastic... Um, um, physios here and all that sort of preparation that we need to get ourselves up to scratch and make sure that before and after we're doing everything we need to do to get our bodies right because you are right it is it, it is it can be uncomfortable mm. um, but the reward the payoff is is obviously when yeah. um, when we see how much people enjoy it um, we think it's you know it's definitely well worth it mm. now these puppets were developed by the handspring puppet company mm -hmm. are you across the story of how they developed yeah, well, well, from the very beginning and through the rehearsal process, we actually just got an understanding of how these were made and just the very basics of, mm. like, we started off um, learning how to move we, sticks. We, <laughs> we start off with, with just a stick from a tree and we endow that and give it breath and a story and, and we move from there to, to just bits of brown paper and you give that a breath and make it have a nightmare and then we worked mm. into these little sort of paper men and the style of our puppeteers is called, I think it's Bunroku? Bunraku. Bunraku, which is a Japanese style where the puppeteers are always seen. So we've got a lot of history about the type of puppeteers we use. It takes, yeah, it takes a year for Handspring to make the full puppets. Like, so it takes a long time to get so everything together. It's the horses and, and the goose, the, swallows. Goose, goose, the swallows, swallows, the crows, everything. the yeoman puppets, which are the men that mount the mustering horses, which are another puppet. There are just so many beautiful beautiful puppets in the show though. have you had any mishaps <laughs> oh. uh, we've had, we've had, had a, nothing like major. nothing major but you just have like nights where you know i'll have the pole like that and somehow manage to get stuck down my pants and you know just yeah like yeah. random moments like that but i think nothing major you just work around it <laughs> so the three of your actors do you think that you've got a future in pup being puppeteers or is this a one-off thing for you Oh, I'm hooked. I yeah, love it. I, um, like I, it. I absolutely love it. Um, I mean, I think it's really important as an actor and an artist, actually, just, just to be versatile um, and to take opportunities. Uh, and if this opportunity sees me working with puppets, you mm -hmm. know, for the, for the next few decades, then so be it. I'll be definitely happy. But, um, yeah, like I said, you know, it's, it's such a it's such a crazy industry that we're in that you really just have to um, go with it, go, <laughs> go with it and, yeah. and, you know, be thankful that... Um, that you that you have an opportunity like this to to mm. really bring mm. a, just an amazing show to uh, to life. Well, it's been lovely to meet the three of you. Thank you so thank much you, for Michael. sharing your secrets no with us and the uh, Radio National audience. Great, thank you very much. For You're welcome, us. Michael. Thank Thanks you. very much, Michael. Ben McAvoy, Kayla Cabanas and Grant Fuchs, puppeteers from the original Melbourne production. 
of that epic play, Warhorse. We met them backstage in 2013. Well, Warhorse returns to Australia this summer. Same production, same incredible puppets with a brand new cast. It opens at Melbourne's Regent Theatre on the 10th of January, followed by seasons at Sydney's Lyric and Perth's Crown Theatre in February and March. You'll find all the details on our website. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is The Stage Show. Hi, I'm Muriel. Then I'm on the run for my entire life. Hi, Muriel. When you get to Sydney, you will never, never want to go home. When you get to Sydney, you won't ever have to feel alone. When you get to be what you want to be, do what you want to do, say what you want to say, screw who you want to screw. Sydney, are you Oh, I love that song. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that here at The Stage Show, we are enormous fans of the Australian musical, and if we can have a big commercial Aussie musical, all the better. The musical version of Muriel's Wedding, directed by Simon Phillips, won a pile of awards, including Five Helpmans. That was in 2018, and that song was from that show. It was joyful, it was dangerous, it was subversive, and profoundly, sometimes disturbingly, Australian. Well, the Australian musical is nothing new. We have been writing them for a hundred years. That's the message of a sumptuous new book called The Australian Musical by Peter Pinney and Peter Wiley-Johnston. And uh, I wonder why it's taken so long for Australian musicals really to make a splash. Let's ask Peter Wiley-Johnston because he's in the studio. Hello, Michael. So lovely to have you here, Peter. So you're you're a musician, you're a music historian, but when does this obsession with um, musicals begin? This all starts when I was five years old and saw The Sound of Music. Rogers and Hammerstein, of course, that triggered it all. But when I was 11, I saw Carolyn by Peter Pinney and Don Batty at St Martin's Theatre, and that really did it with Australian musicals. I started collecting cuttings, clippings, recordings, which now amount to 25 volumes of scrapbooks. And where, where are they? In your garage, are they? They're where in are they? my beautiful archive. In your beautiful archive, I'm sorry. Which was at one time a garage, but it's now a beautiful archive. <laughs> right. It houses say. thousands upon thousands of original scores. Photographs, cuttings, clippings, 25 volumes of scrapbooks. And what do you do with these? I mean, on a a rainy Saturday afternoon, do you sit down and relive the joys of something you saw in 1968? Well, I've been rereading these things for many years, which is how I was able to write the book, full of interviews and all sorts of things going back to the 60s, 70s, 80s and so on. So it's a marvellous resource and I sit there sometimes picking out my favourite songs from Australian musicals. And do you just sing them quietly to yourself? Well, I used to sing them when I had a voice that could sing, so... That was wonderful, but now I listen to other people a bit better than I used to. Probably. Right. I mean, we should also say that you are an accomplished singer in your own right, and you became interested in Australian women composers. How did that happen? I sure did, Michael. I was in New York living there for several years, and through wonderful things, I was introduced to Mary Rogers, who, of course, is the daughter of Richard, who was a very rare thing on Broadway, a woman composer. Once Upon a Mattress was a big hit. She wrote books, but also music and musicals. Sondheim happened to be her best friend. She'd grown up with Sondheim. And I used to go and have uh, mornings with Mary, <laughs> Central Park West. That's a title for a song. Thank you so much. I wish someone had written it. And in one of our first conversations, she said, Peter, are there any Australian women composers? And I began to realise that there was an opportunity and here was a new line of inquiry, research. And I'd been planning to do something about this for a long time. But that really triggered my research when I came back to Australia in 2001. Well, tell us about the woman who wrote this. Bless this house, oh Lord, we pray. 
You just have to wait for June Bronhill to hit that top note, don't you? What a beautiful version of that song. I never thought of anyone writing this. It's a song that just seems always to have existed. But the, the astonishing thing is it was written by somebody. Well, that's not astonishing. It was written by an Australian. It's quite extraordinary, Michael. Maybra, a brilliant young Australian woman from Melbourne, born in the 1880s, determined to have a career as a songwriter and did so in a way that very few Australians have ever enjoyed a career like that. Quite extraordinary. So her name's hard to catch. It's May, and then her surname is Bra, which is B-R-A-H-E. Correct. Yes, it's a strange name, but a very, very famous name. And it's one that's famous around the world in circles because Bless This House, written in 1928, became a huge hit in 1932 and sold 2.5 million copies of sheet music. Which is the equivalent today of selling a CD. You measure the success of songs in those days by the sheet music it sold. Absolutely. And Melba used to sing that as a sort of party piece. She did. Well, Melba was a great friend of Maybra and, in fact, used to visit in London when Maybra was living there. And Maybra had gone to London in 1912 telling her husband that she was going to come back and pick him up with their two sons when she'd made enough money to do so. So she left in 1912 and after two years came back and by which time she was a published songwriter making a lot of money. This is a very modern story. She leaves her husband and the kids back in what, in Melbourne, was it? Or? She does, in Melbourne, in, Melbourne. in Richmond. In Richmond, working-class Richmond. Go, yeah. Says, I'll, I'll see you when I'm famous. That's precisely right. <laughs> and she got to London and within a very short order, Enoch and Sons, who were a huge publishing house, published her songs. And in 1915, she wrote, I passed by your window, which made sold more than a million copies over the next couple of years of sheet music, making her, I believe the first woman in the world to achieve that distinction. All right, so she actually published hundreds of songs in her life. Did she write a musical? She did. I Passed By Your Window was from a musical, but it wasn't produced until 1932 in England because no one would produce her musicals. They only wanted her art songs. And we get to the distinction between art songs and popular music which was a rather snobbish distinction back in those days. So you mean a musical in the 1900s through yes. to the 20s, 30s, a musical is seen as sort of vulgar. Very much. Whereas Bless This House is refined. Correct. And of course, Bless This House comes later, but at the time, in 1915, musicals were of another genre, which was beneath a great artist such as May Brower in the eyes of her publishers. So they did not encourage her musicals. Well, it's the vulgarity of theatre and musicals that I think is so appealing. Um, let's talk about Adelaide in the 20s, because you say this is an absolutely formative period, which, of course, is the jazz era. You say this is where we find the origins of the Australian musical. Tell me about Jack Fuster. What inspired him to write Australian musicals? Well, Jack Fuster was quite extraordinary. He was inspired by Irving Berlin more than anyone. And from the 1910s, when Berlin became the most successful songwriter in the world, Alexander's around Taiban. Fuster was determined to emulate him as much as he could. So he wrote words and music. And in 1919, after he'd been an entertainer during the war, went to America and even went to Tin Pan Alley to learn the craft of songwriting for Broadway. Came back to Australia. In August 1920, FFF, the first Australian music book musical with that very strange title, was presented in Adelaide, produced in a big way, at the Prince of Wales Theatre, and Fuster saw it. FFF. And there was even a prize for someone who could guess what FFF stood for. Could be rude. Might shut us to think what that could have been. <laughs> That's right. So Peter Wiley-Johnson's with us today, and uh, we're talking about 
the Australian musical, and I have to tell you that this deluge of information is tumbling out of him without any notes. He just knows all this stuff. Now, the great champion of Australian stories and Australian entertainment in the 1930s was Frank Thring Sr. Let's hear one of the uh, shows that he produced, or music from one of the shows he produced. It's called The Cedar Tree. songs like this anymore, do they? So this is by a composer called Mrs. Varney Monk. Correct. She was married to Cyril Monk, who was the first violinist in the Sydney Symphony, and she insisted on being called Mrs. Varney Monk. Okay. And she's a great writer of songs in Sydney in the 30s. So what's The Cedar Tree about? The Cedar Tree is about a girl who inherits a shipping yard and falls into a triangular relationship with a sort of bad guy and the good guy and ultimately ends up with the good guy. But during the story, we find this extraordinary centrepiece of the musical, which is the cedar tree itself. There's a marvellous scene where she demands that the cedar tree not be chopped down. She stands up for environmental values in 1934 in a way which is extraordinarily prescient. And this is a musical which really focuses on that issue because Varney Monk loved the Australian bush and often visited the bush and was determined to write a story that really upheld the value of Australiana um, in various ways. And this is quite an extraordinary thing to have done. She also wrote uh, an, an opera called, or a musical called Collets Inn, which is the story of a woman who's engaged to an army captain but falls in love with a bush ranger. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Classic sort of story. Now, uh, so that's Mrs. Varney uh, Monk. Now, she's being produced by Frank Thring yes. Sr. So let's talk about him because he's really important in this story. Frank Thring Sr. is the most extraordinary producer in Australia. And history. he's the father of the famous Frank Thring, who was the actor of our youth. Absolutely. And Peter Fitzpatrick, one of our most eminent scholars, has written a brilliant biography of the two Frank Thrings. And Frank Thring Sr. was quite an extraordinary man who was avowedly Australian. He was insisting in the early 1930s on producing only Australian work, original Australian work, and he searched for new Australian musicals as well as making Australian films. And he met Mrs Varney Monk in 1933 after the original production of Collets Inn in Sydney, which was deemed very successful, he brought her to Melbourne and produced a massive production at the Princess Theatre, which at the time he leased, and it was extremely successful. Gladys Moncrief was the star, and it ran through the entire year in Melbourne and Sydney. A massive success by the standards of 1933. And it included an Aboriginal corroboree. It most certainly did, Michael, and interestingly... Varney Monk had been in the Blue Mountains a few years earlier and a lady whom she called Queen Rosie, an elder of what was called the Illawarra tribe at the time, sang this most extraordinary piece and it was the first time that really we had the Indigenous voice in any sense at all being projected on stage in Australian shows in a big way. All right. Now, in competition with Frank Thring... I suppose, is J.C. Williamson, who were the big producers at the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. J.C. Williamson was a chap, but the company's known as J.C.W. They only commissioned one Australian musical ever, even though they put on musicals by the hundreds. That's exactly right, Michael. And, of course, Williamson 
was an American who emigrated to Australia and established this link between Broadway and Australia in a very important way. The plus side was that he imported musicals and that meant Australian performers could get to the standard of anyone anywhere in the world, which of course we still are. But the downside very strongly was that Broadway shows took priority, as did English shows ahead of Australian work. So only once in 1934 did Williamson commission Charles Zouar, a young man from Melbourne, to write a musical called Blue Mountain Melody, which was very successful, but they didn't do another one after that. They're not afraid of obvious rhymes, are they? I think we had you and me also in the cedar tree, and now it's, <laughs> it's rhyming there. Little house for you and me. Um, I think I would have been happy in the 1930s. I reckon I could have got a job singing that. I can see a picture. Bravo. Well, Michael, I have to say there was you know, an understanding of the commercial sort of style of music, which was pretty strong in Australia back then. And I think Kate Miller-Hart is captured brilliantly in Muriel's Wedding. Yes. Well, that's right. It is a ratbag sort of a ratbag sort of song, isn't it? Now, we, we could have gone on playing songs for the entire hour. We obviously can't do that. But what we've shown with this brief taste is that from the 20s, well, from earlier, really, all the way through, we've got a tradition of Australian musical theatre. Now, the question is, why isn't it then more vigorous? You, we could blame producers. We could blame the leading companies. But in the end... Does the audience really want to see these or is the truth that people put these on because people do want to pay top money to go and see yet another version of Les Miserables? Well, there's a really, that's a great question. There's a very important distinction, I think, to be made between original scores and jukebox musicals, which we have a lot of today. If we look at the big successes of the 20th and 21st centuries with original scores, the two most successful are The Sentimental Bloke from the 60s, which is still revived and made buckets of money, wasn't commissioned by Williamson's, it was produced by them sort of accidentally, which proved the point that when there was a show that hit the spot commercially with the right producer, in other words, someone who'd back it properly, it could really run, which it really did. Mm. In the 2000s, the extraordinary success is Keating the Musical, which I first saw at the Trades Hall, then at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, then in the commercial production by Neil Armfield. Now, for me, the money behind that was very small, but the quality of the writing, both music and words, is outstanding. Yeah. The, the other musical that's a huge success is this. There's nothing I would rather be than to be an Aborigine And what you take my precious land away Yes, yeah, the politics shining through joyfully in Brand New Day, which uh, premiered in 1990. It's absolutely marvellous, Michael, because his indigenous voice speaking up loud and clear in a most magnificent piece of work, which I'm happy to say the Australian Opera is going to revive this coming year. 
at long last. But this was a big success indeed for Jimmy Chai and everyone associated that I think needs to be congratulated because it triggered two more musicals in the 90s, Corrugation Road and Wesley Enoch's The Sunshine Club in 1999. So Brand New Day is the first time when we hear loud and clear the Indigenous voice being heard on the stage in a way that was embraced right around Australia. Yeah. And now so much exciting work is coming from Indigenous Australia in in the theatre with Nakia Louie on the telly. Peter Wiley-Johnson, congratulations on this big, delicious book, which is full of mouth-watering pictures from your, I was going to say garage, from your lovely archive. (laughs) Beautiful to have you with us. Thank you very much, Michael. Peter Wiley-Johnson is the co-author of The Australian Musical. And yeah, it's a lovely book. It's published by Alan and Unwin, and it's just out. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is RN. Well, that, my friends, is the show. The stage show is produced by Kim Jurek. The executive producer of Arts on RN is Sky Kirkham. Thanks to all the marvellous technicians who worked on the show today, including Ari Gross and Brendan O'Neill. And remember, you can podcast the stage show whenever you want, and there's a bonus podcast just waiting for you. It's a wonderful interview with Frank Wildhorn, who is the most confident man on the planet. He's written all sorts of musicals that have been wildly successful, and we're particularly talking about his show, Jekyll and Hyde. Now, he recorded a concept album where they recorded what all the music would sound like, and he worked on that with Anthony Warlow. Anthony is really the gold standard, and that performance on that album, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the whole thing, is just an enormous, beautiful, artistic adventure that he brings us on and that was a hell of a summer that we spent together on mount olympus on laurel canyon in los angeles recording in um, the mad hatter which was chick korea's studio in uh, pasadena and uh, i must say i haven't haven't heard that in a long time so that brought back a lot of everything in that story is a legend there's chick korea yeah that's true that is that's olympus yes studio (laughs) called the mad hatter Yes, 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 yes. It's a marvellous conversation. You'll really enjoy this. Frank Wildhorn, Anthony Warlow, you'll hear all the music from Jekyll and Hyde and discover this astonishing composer's great catalogue of highly commercial, highly successful musicals and also pop songs. I'm Michael Cathcart. Let's do this again very, very soon. This is Irene. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.